today we will be looking at Second uh, John. Second um, John is quite easy to find. It's in between First and Third John. So, if you can turn your Bible to Second John, we're going to be reading the entirety of the book. Um, which, as most of us would know, there's only one chapter in Second John. So, so uh, can I ask you all to rise as we read God's word? This is Second uh, John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Father God, we want to thank you a lot for this time, for giving us the opportunity to Read from your word, and more than that, a lot to, to, to learn from it and to learn more about you through it a lot. We pray that as we spend some time uh, in, in this episode, that you will guard our hearts and our minds a lot and lead us to the truth of your son who died for us on the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Um, I was walking by, um, I believe it is Eaton Center in Toronto. I saw this poster uh, it was a poster for Town Shoes. You know, there's a company called Town Shoes. It said, um, uh, whatever is the question, shoes are the answer. Um, now, as to a man like me, that makes no sense. For, for men, usually shoes are not the answer. They're usually the problem. But, um, you know, that's their tagline. And, and we live in a culture um, that increasingly sees the answer to every moral, every ethical question uh, to be called something called love, or tolerance. Okay? So in, in society, there is no differentiation between love and tolerance. So what, what is love as society defines it? It's an unquestioning emotional acceptance of everyone's opinions. You know, by embracing what you feel and what you believe, by, even by celebrating your choices, I am seen to be having love for you. you know, on the other hand, truth is merely seen as intellectual activity. So it's a search for the facts that has relevance when you're in like a courtroom or when you're trying to pay tax or get a refund from the government. But truth has no relevance for behavior or morals. Our society says every person has their own version of truth and each person's truth must be respected. So often what we hear is that truth is a matter of private conviction, while love is a matter of public behavior or public civility. Our society has no place for a truth that impacts love or for a love that is defined by truth. What they say is that truth divides, but love unites. Truth is relative, but love is absolute. Truth is subjective but love is authoritative. Now, as Christians who believe in God, who have been given the word of God that claims for itself to be the final authority in all matters of living, that, you know, that creates some problems. Not just in the world outside, but even within the church, right? The church 
it's impacted by how society is. So we see increasing issues within the church itself as to what is the final authority. Is the final authority going to be truth or is it going to be whatever I choose to believe in the name of love? But, you know, they say history repeats itself, right? And, and we'd be wrong to think that we are in a unique time in world history. You know, many centuries ago, the, the teacher who wrote Ecclesiastes, you know, with, with a hint of tiredness, he said, there's nothing new under the sun. And when we think about the world into which Jesus Christ came, you'll see that it was very similar to our own. He came into a world during the time of the Roman Empire in which there were many religions and philosophies. It was a marketplace of ideas and everyone was free to debate. Right? We know this from um, the book of Acts in which Paul goes into the marketplace and starts debating it. So everyone was free to debate, but no one was free to impose or insist that my truth is the final word or that my truth is exclusive. But here's the problem. See, Jesus Christ would not fit into that paradigm. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, this very famous verse from John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what is he claiming? He claimed that only the truth that he brought would reveal God the Father, and that only the truth that he brought had the power to set a person free. He was saying that the truth that he brought was absolute. He was claiming the exclusivity of absolute truth in a world that valued the diversity of relative truth. His truth was offensive. It was dangerous to the rulers and authorities of this world. And for that, they crucified him. But here's the thing about absolute truth. It's absolutely true. So he rose up from the dead after three days to confirm the validity of the truth that he brought into the world. And before leaving this world, he sent out his disciples, as we read in the Gospels, into the world with the mandate that they take the truth to all nations. Now, the Apostle John was one of his disciples. And, and if you read the Gospel, we find that he's often referred to as the beloved disciple. And he is the author of um, five books in the New Testament, right? the Gospel of John, the Revelation, and the three Johannine epistles, which is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the second of which is our text today. Now, John had pastoral or you know, eldership oversight over a community of Christians in a city called Ephesus. Right? Ephesus is familiar to us because you know, there's, there's the epistle of Ephesians. Now, Ephesus was a city in the heart of this pluralistic world of that time. It was a city with many gods, including most famous of all, the goddess Diana, many temples and many truths. And in the midst of that environment, there are these new Christian communities who are intent on believing in one God and one Savior, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the one truth, which is the truth of the gospel. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is John's passionate appeal to these communities to stay strong in the truth. His confirmation of the fact that the truth is, is, is not just true, but it is real, it's historic. And he lays out the practical implications of living and walking in the truth. Now, quite a few months ago, I believe, our brother Jason went through 1st John. And, and, and when you read 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, they are not three separate epistles, but rather um, they are very closely connected. John has one theme, one idea, and, 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 and his, ge his general theme is walking in the truth. And for John, the word truth has some very specific uh, connotations, right? So I'm going to point out three connotations that John gives to the truth. The first one is that the truth is a person. Okay? So John believed in Jesus' self-identification of himself as the truth. So for John, the truth was not just a series of facts or just an event of history, but rather truth was contained within the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So you could say that for John, truth was flesh and blood. So if you read the beginning of 1 John, 1 John verses 1 to 4, uh, I'll have a lot of verses, some of which will be on the screen. 
Um, but, uh, you know, you can just, I will read out the verses. So First John verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may also have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See what John is saying? He's saying he has seen and he has looked upon and he has touched. You see, is there any wonder why he's so passionate about the truth? It's very hard to be passionate about an idea. But it is not that hard to be passionate about a person that you love. And that's why John is passionate about the truth and about the person who is the truth. For John, it is not an intellectual debate. It is a matter of eternal life or eternal damnation. It is a matter of faithfulness to his master, the one who died for his sins on the cross. It is a matter of obedience to the risen king who now reigns in heaven. Now when John talks about Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ, you can see that he's very specifically talking about a few key aspects of Jesus Christ. Right? And this is throughout the New Testament, but especially in John, you'll see that John says that the man Jesus is the Christ. Right? That the human being, Jesus, is the Messiah, the anointed one. The second thing he says is that the Son of God has been incarnated as a human being. So it's not just that the human being Jesus is the Messiah, but indeed he's, he is the Son of God who, tech, who took on flesh. So he's both human and he's divine. And, and then what he says is that the death of the Son of God is the only atonement for sins. So Jesus is both divine and human, and his death on the cross is the only way for our sins to be forgiven. In short, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is the only way anyone can be saved. That is what John says the truth is. So the truth is a person. Secondly, what John says about the truth, the truth is set in stone. It is not evolving. It is not being innovated upon. So if you read First John and in, in the verses we read, you will notice the recurrence of the words from the beginning. Okay? So let me read a couple of verses from First John. Um, he says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. In other words, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, the truth that John testifies to is conservative. And when we say conservative, we are not talking about Stephen Harper. You know, what conservative means is that it is not subject to change. The final revelation of God had been given in the incarnation of the Son. And no new revelation was going to come. The full content of that revelation was given to the apostles and is recorded for us in the words of Scripture. Anything that was new in relation to that revelation, that was innovative, is a contradiction of the one truth. It is falsehood. Okay? A, a commentator says that we might say that for John, an appeal to the tradition which is from the beginning is fundamental for understanding what it means to be a Christian in the present. If we do not understand the truth which is from the beginning, we cannot understand what it means to be a Christian in the present. So even in today's world, as Christians, we need to go back to the basics because that is the truth. You will find even in Christendom, which is the wider Christian world, there are a lot of claims of new revelation. A lot of cults, a lot of sects, begin with new revelation, right? That is Mormonism. He, uh, Joseph Smith claimed new revelation. That is Christian scientists. 
Mary uh, Eddie Baker claimed new revelation. But what we see is that you know, John is saying this is from the beginning. So we have to discount the claims of new revelation because that is falsehood. But there's also a lot of attempts to be imaginative in the interpretation of doctrine. So people ask, well, why can't I use my imagination to think of God uh, not just as he's described in the words of the Bible, but as, you know, whatever I feel like, whatever is culturally relevant. You know, why cannot God be thought of as, uh, as, as, as the battered wife, as I was reading recently, or as, uh, you know, or as a woman, or as, um, you, know, you know, what they're saying is, has a hint of truth in it because there's no gender assigned to God in the Bible, but God reveals himself as the father as a male figure. So then the question that many people ask is, why can't we be imaginative in that? All right, you know, John Calvin once said that um, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols, all right? So what he's saying is that the human mind is an endless factory of idols. And, and why that is so, you have to think about how imagination works. Uh, going to ask uh, Josh, what is your favorite? Let me ask Sheila, what's your favorite vehicle that you would one day like to own? If, you had, if your money was no object. Uh, Acura MDX. She's aiming low. Okay, good. Uh, all right, Josh. Okay, Nissan, the Nissan GTR, which is like a supercar, right? All right. These are all. These are both good answers. They use their imagination. Okay. Why didn't they say? I want a monster truck. Do you know what a monster truck is? You know, it's, this is huge trucks with big wheels. I can guarantee you if I asked a six or seven year old kid, he might have said, I want a monster truck. Or I want a red fire truck. See, what happens is that we do not realize that our imagination is conditioned by the context, the environment in which we are, by the things that we know. We like to think of imagination as free-flowing, as, as opening up new horizons. But what it really is, is just a reflection of who we are, of what our desires are. So when we use imagination to interpret God, what we really are doing is bringing God down to our level, trying to imagine him in a way that makes sense to us in our context. So does the picture of God as a battered woman make sense to a wife who is abused? It does. But that is not the way God has revealed himself. The human mind is an endless factory of idols. The truth is recorded in the words of scripture. What we need to do is read and study and uncover that truth instead of you know, chasing after the things that might be new or innovative or fun, but ultimately cannot save. All right, so that's the second one. And the last thing that John says about the truth is that he says, truth and love are not in conflict. Rather, they are interdependent. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3, what is John 3.16? You can say it, any translation, it's okay, no one judges. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Right? So for God so loved the world, then what is it saying after that? Here is a truth statement that he gave us his only son. All right, this is a, another famous verse in 1 John. In this is love, 1 John 4 and verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And another verse from 1 John is that we love because... He first loved us. So you notice in all of these verses, we can only truly know what love is because of God's love for us. We cannot think rightly about ourselves or others until we perceive the truth that is revealed only in Jesus Christ. That we are all sinners whose sin separates us from God and from each other. And especially from those whom we wish to love. And when you ask what love is, we do not have a clear answer until we understand what God love is. We can only truly love others as ourselves because we recognize that all of us are sinners and yet God loved us first and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. 
You know, without the truth or that sacrificial grace, love is meaningless. It's just an emotion that has no bearing. But once you know the love of God for you, you can love somebody else. You can love the neighbor who has wronged you. Because you know that you wronged God and yet God loved you. So love and truth are not separate. They're interdependent. Like Alistair Begg says that, you know, the interdependence is in such that without truth, love descends into mere sentimentalism. But without love, truth is just harsh and brittle. You know, like I say, a, a hammer to the head of one person. Without the conviction that that truth is not to be used as a matter of debate, but it is a truth that can save that person, just as it saved us. You know, our love for a person means that we cannot continue to let him or her be deceived by falsehood, but rather we hope to see him or her join us in the truth. So, love is a person. Love is um, truth is a person. You know, the truth is from the beginning, and, and truth and love are interdependent. All right. So that, that is what John says about truth. Now let's come to uh, what Second John specifically is about. So the context of Second John you can find in the last few verses, especially in verse 11. What was happening was that there were false teachers, those who were perverting, those who were corrupting the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the nature of his person, the character of his salvation. They were going out from these early churches, you know, almost like missionaries, and they were spreading their falsehoods to other churches, you know, in near and far regions. So John comes to know of this, and he wishes to warn his audience of the arrival of these false teachers. And the immediate question in Second John is a question of hospitality. The question is, though they identified themselves as Christians. See, these false teachers were not saying that, that we are Jehovah's Witnesses or, or, or we are Latter-day Saints. They were identifying themselves as Christians. Were those in the church supposed to receive them and hear what they had to say? And that is a realistic issue, right? Aren't we as Christians commanded to love one another and love our neighbor? So shouldn't there be an obligation to treat these people, these people who actually identify themselves as Christians, lovingly by inviting them into our homes, even if they differed from us in our doctrine? Our doctrine being, you know, the truth that we fight for. And we'll see this is a contextual answer, but it has uh, practical implications for us in the present. And in this context, John's answer is no. And like he goes to the extent of saying, it's not just about welcoming them into your home. Don't even bother to greet them. And we'll see why when we go over that verse. Because he's saying, a love that is not based in the truth is not love at all. Rather, it'll serve to harm us by enticing us into falsehood. It'll harm our fellow brothers and sisters by exposing them to the falsehood. And it'll harm this person who actually believes in the falsehood and who is preaching it by not convicting him of his sin. So that's John's answer to this problem. And the way he lays it out, um, you know, this is a small book, but if you want to think about it uh, in a bit more of a, you know, like a logical division, you can think of it in three sections. First, he talks about the fact that we have a loving fellowship in the truth in verses one to three. Then he talks about our need to have a loving obedience to the truth in verses four to six. And then finally, he goes on to say that we need to lovingly defend the truth in verses 7 to 11. A loving fellowship in the truth, a loving obedience to the truth, and a loving defense of the truth. So verses 1 to 3 of Second John, it talks about our fellowship in the truth. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So first we see that he addresses his letter to the elect lady and her children. Now for a long time people um, you know, were of the opinion that this was a real lady uh, with real children. Um, but uh, you know, nowadays you know, it is, you know, almost everyone uh, understands this not to be like a, a person, but actually that he's writing, he's referring to the church. Uh, in that community, saying the church is the lady, the children is the believers. 
And the reason why that is, is uh, twofold. One, uh, because if it was a real lady, then the word elect uh, would have to be her name, like electa uh, in the Greek, not electra, who is related to daredevil, but, but um, electa. But that's never seen as a word, um, in, in, as a name in the Greek. And then the problem arises that in the last word, he says, your elect sister. So then you have two sisters who are both called electa. That's not really plausible. But also because uh, the word elect here uh, is often used in, in the writings of John. So John chapter 15 and verse 19, uh, Jesus says that if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the, the, the concept of choice or of election in the Gospel of John is always tied to the community of God's people. That is the church. So John is addressing his letter to the elect lady and her children, which is the church uh, and its members. To that local church and its members. And then John says that he loves them in truth. You know, that means he loves them because he and them share in the knowledge of the truth that has saved them. He loves them in truth. It's not, he's not saying, I truly love you. Right? It's, not, it's not a romantic letter. He's saying that I love them in, I love you in truth because we share in this one truth. And John says, not just I, but everyone who knows the truth. So all Christian believers love each other because we are one in the truth. Right? Um, now again, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so the word abide, you know, if you go through John's gospel, it comes up again and again. And here he says, all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. You know, the truth abides in us. It is sufficient to save us for eternity. It will be with us forever. And that is why Christian fellowship is not limited by race or by ethnicity or by culture or blood. It transcends all those barriers because Christians everywhere abide in the same truth, the one truth that is found in Jesus Christ. So the fellowship in the truth exists between us as people, but it also exists between us as individual Christians and the eternal, holy, everlasting triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. You know, where truth and love are present, we have fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we find the grace and the mercy and the peace that is needed to sustain us, to refresh us, and to carry us forward. So where there is truth, grace, mercy, and peace from God is also present. So we not only have fellowship with each other, but we also have fellowship with the triune God. That's our loving fellowship in the truth. Now, Second John 4 to 6 talks about our, the need to have a loving obedience to the truth. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. So what John is saying is that he's, he's heard of the report, he's heard of the good testimony of this community and that fills him with joy. And what is the testimony? That they are walking in the truth, that they are faithful to the truth that has been entrusted to them. However, and you already notice that it does not seem that his joy is full, that his joy is complete because... Why? Only some, he says, are walking in the truth. You know? Perhaps some of his audience have already drifted away from the truth. You know, we have to be very careful. Being part of a Christian community or a community that causes a person is no guarantee against the intrusion of falsehood into our personal lives. You know, but we have, to, um, you know, we have to guard each other and take comfort in the fact that if we rely on God, um, Jesus says in you know, John chapter 14 again, he says, uh, I'll ask the Father, I'll give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, even the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. If we are honest between ourselves, if we guard each other, 
but we also rely on the spirit that abides in us. Jesus says he's the spirit of truth. He's going to guard us from drifting into falsehood. Resting in him is, is the guarantee of our security in the truth. And John proceeds to remind the church that they are to love one another. This verse, uh, you know, the verse is in, uh, I believe that's verse 5. He says, now I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. And that is almost the same verse as 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. Um, I think that verse is there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 to 10 says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So it's not a new command. It's an old command. Then why does he remind them again? So you see, the newness is not in the command, which they have had from the beginning, but the newness is in the situation that they now face, which John is writing to them about. It is possible that the circumstances that now face that church, which might soon come into that church, will cause disruption to their normal order of life. So John wants to remind them of their duty to love one another and not let you know, the heat and the passion of the moment derail their unity. You know, that's a good reminder to all of us as well. You know, like the commandment is old, that we love one another. But we need to remind of that again and again because the situations which we face are new. And every time something comes up that can cause, you know, can cause division, that can cause passions to be enraged, we need to remind ourselves that we are commanded to love our brothers and sisters. So that's what John is saying. I'm not writing to you as this is a new commandment because you've had it from the beginning. But I'm writing to you now because you need it more than ever. Love one another. And this is love, John says, that we walk according to his commandments. What is his command? He says, uh, the English translation says, um, walk in it. The word it at the end of verse 6, read it as truth. So the command is that walk in the truth. So what does that mean? How, how is it possible that loving one another is actually meaning that you walk in the truth? Okay. Now, we should already have a clue because this is what Jesus already said, that if you love me, in John chapter 14, what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John has already said in 1 John that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not, uh, not a burden. They're not burdensome. But here he goes beyond that and says, but genuine love for others also mean that we walk according to the commandments of God. How is that possible? Right? So, Here's the famous golden, golden rule as Jesus uh, explained it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Matthew chapter 22, verses um, 37 to 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what is this verse actually saying? Often we mean, take it to say that if I love God and if I love you, I have fulfilled all the commandments, right? The Ten Commandments and all, and all the commandments found in the Old Testament. Now there's truth to that, but it's not actually saying that love is an emotion. What it is saying is you have to actually do the things in the commandments that pertain to your neighbor to show that you love him or her. So what Jesus is saying is that some of these commandments relate to your relationship, uh, to the relationship between you and God. The other commandments relate to the relationship between you and your neighbor. So all of the commandments can be summed up in this. Love God and love your neighbor. It means you do it. And you can see this elaborated in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. 
Romans chapter 13, 8, verse 8 to 10, Paul speaks on the same, same premise. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. How so? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what does he say? Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. See, the various social commands you know, that are summed up in the one rule of loving one's neighbor is to show us that love has to be active. It has to be active in the sense that these things are obeyed by us, these things are fulfilled by us, and these things are acted upon by us. We cannot say that we love our brothers and sisters and then covet what they have. That's what Paul is saying. You cannot do wrong to a brother or sister and say that you love them. So it's not the love, the emotion that comes first, but rather the conviction that because we are to love each other, that we shall not do any wrong to each other. So that's why John says, to love means to walk in the truth. Because by obeying the commandments of God, we show both the love of God, we show both our love of God and our love for our neighbor. Be that a brother, be that be a, a brother or sister in Christ or someone you know, on the outside. A love that is not accompanied by action, namely the actions that are commanded by God, is not true, neither is it meaningful. So you see, obedience enriches our relationship with God and with others. That's why we lovingly obey the truth. So we have fellowship in the truth, we need to have obedience to the truth, and then we come to the last section. It's our loving defense of the truth. Second John 7 to 11. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, you can see the words repeating again, does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So we come to the reason why John is saying all of these things. He says, for, because, many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, what the particular concern here seems to be the false teaching that the incarnation of Jesus Christ did not happen the way as it is described uh, in the Bible. All right? So there was a, a, a theory that Jesus Christ did not have a real body while he was there on this earth. What he had was a, a, a spiritual body, by which we mean like a magical body, which means that you can see him, but he's just like a vision. He's just like an apparition. It's like an apparent body. So therefore, when he went to the cross, he did not actually suffer or he did not actually die. It is just it is all like an appearance. That is because in the Eastern world, uh, in the Eastern philosophies, matter and spirit are opposed to each other, right? Like those of us who come from India know this, that, that there is uh, the idea that all matter is evil, that is all flesh is evil, and all uh, spirit is good, so the two cannot coexist. So that seems to have been the specific uh, false teaching uh, that is talked about here. But more than the reality of Jesus' physical body, when John says, they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's saying that the denial of Jesus' humanity, his fleshly incarnation, uh, not only denies the significance of his coming, but it denies the significance of his death and his resurrection for the atonement of our sins and for the salvation of our souls. Because Christ's full humanity was necessary to fulfill God's plan of salvation. If Christ was a spirit, if he was just, his body was just a vision, then God's plan would fail. It wouldn't work out. Because it needed the humanity of Christ to take our place in order to be our substitute. That is what we mean by atonement of sins. Therefore, because they deny 
Christ in this manner, what does John call them? He calls them antichrists. Now that's a very uh, popular word, right? Uh, people are fond of throwing that word around. But it's, it's interesting to note that the only time the word appears in the Bible is in the epistles of John. Antichrist. It means someone who is opposed to the truth of Christ. That's what it means. Right? It's not, it's not left behind. Right? It, it, is, it is someone who is opposed to the truth of Christ. And while that was the occasion then, that was a specific false teaching, you know, deception and false teaching continues to be an issue in our lives today. You know, like, one is, like, what we have today is, is twofold. One is the issue of what we call heresy. What is heresy? Now, some of you might have heard that word. Who here has not heard the word heresy? That's very good. Heresy comes from the Greek word for choice. Okay, that's, right, that's interesting. It comes from the Greek word for choice. And, and heresy is not a problem of choice. It is a problem of believing that every choice is valid. Do you see that? It's not a problem of choice. It's not a problem of asking questions. You know, people say, oh, you don't let me ask questions. You know, the problem is not in the asking of questions. It's in the belief that every answer is equally valid, that all answers are right. The absolute truth demands that only the choices that are found in scripture be accepted. That's why we call it heresy, right? And so heresy uh, is something in which a fundamental doctrine of the Bible is denied, contradicted, or added to. So her heretics, when you think of heretics who are like, there's Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they said Jesus was created. So he's, he's not fully divine. There's Mormon, there's Mormons, you know, who say that Jesus was a man, right? And he became God. Therefore, all Mormons believe that our end, our fate is to become gods, just like Jesus. And many uh, charismatic denominations, for example, who argue that Christians must speak in tongues to have the Holy Spirit. That is all heresy because they all deny a fundamental doctrine of the Bible. But there's also another issue, which is um, the technical word for it is, is heterodoxy. Okay? Uh, you have to remember that. What it means is a deviation, a difference from orthodoxy. It is teaching which either is not found in the Bible or it, it, is, it is different from commonly accepted doctrine and cannot be proven from the scriptures. So this is the issue of like new revelation. Okay? So when we, talk, when we think about uh, the Catholic veneration of saints, you know what veneration of saints mean? This is like, you know, they are, they are, they are um, you know, adoring uh, saints. Not found in the Bible. So we cannot strictly call it heresy because like what, what doctrine is that contradicting? Well, what they have done is they have added uh, to, uh, you know, they have added to the body of doctrine. So we call that uh, heterodoxy. Another more common heterodoxy today is prosperity gospel, right? In that we, what, what, this, what the prosperity gospel preachers say is that God has obligated himself to make you successful in this life in the manner, uh, in the manner of wealth if you do such and such things. That is prosperity gospel, right? That is also not strictly heresy. If you were to go and call um, a, a prosperity preacher a heretic, he or she would, ar would argue, well, I'm not saying anything that's wrong in the Bible. Where does it say in the Bible I should not say this? But what he is doing is he's, he's, he's subtly changing the testimony of the Bible to fit his or her own teaching, right? So that's heterodoxy. Now, the line between heresy and Heterodoxy is often hard to determine, right? It is often the case, though not always, that heretics themselves do not consider themselves Christians, right? Like Jehovah's Witnesses are not going around saying, I'm a Christian, you know? Like Mormons for the longest time have tried uh, to, to fall into the realm of Christianity, right? Like when, when uh, Mitt Romney was running for US president, that is a big debate, right? Because he wanted to, um, to kind of be thought of as a Christian, but if someone were to ask him, like, are you a Christian? No, he would say, yeah, no, I belong to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. So heretics usually do not consider themselves Christians as we consider them Christians. But uh, those, who are, those who are deviating from orthodoxy would often be within what we call the Christian fold. So that line is very dangerous. You know, it, it, it is like uh, you know, the alcohol limit, the drinking limit. 
Do you know when the danger point starts for the is it at the line? Is it over the line? Is it 0.2 milligrams per thousand parts under the line? No one knows, right? The law says that you should be under the line. But if you were cautious, you would not go near the line. And therefore, you know, we are, um, we should have no like hesitation in calling both heretics and these other kinds of teachers as false teachers, right? That is a different, so it's not that just heretics are false teachers. Teachers who deviate from the biblical understanding of salvation, the biblical understanding of the character of God, the biblical understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit, they are also false teachers, right? For, from a technical point of view, maybe we do not call a certain false teacher a heretic. But from the view of our beliefs, from the view of our lifestyle, we should have no hesitation in calling all of them as false teachers. And John gives us a few hints as to the character of these false teachers. One, they are deceivers. See, Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer in John 17 said, he, this is, Jesus talked about the disciples. He says, as you send me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. For, my, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is saying, I'm sending my disciples out into the world to spread the truth. Now what is John saying? He's saying the deceivers also have gone out into the world to spread their falsehood. You see that? They're taking on the mandate that Jesus gave to his disciples, but instead of having the mandate to spread truth, they're spreading falsehood. So they, they look like the real deal, but they're not. Right? Like a Jehovah's Witness doesn't come to your door uh, with a sign saying, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Have you, have you gone, uh, you know, if you go downtown, if you go even to Milton Go Station now, you'll see they stand up with something called, what does the Bible really teach? Right? They're not, they're not advertising themselves like, hey, we are Jehovah's Witnesses. But they are, they are trying to, to imbibe themselves into the stream of, of, of you know, missionary activity. So that's what, uh, you know, uh, that's what John is saying. They are deceivers, right? I mean, they might sometimes even look better than, than the real deal, right? I, I often say that, um, you know, the better uh, the suit of a preacher and the whiter his teeth, the more cautious you should be of his message. Um, so, um, you know, because, you know, the, 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 there's an attractiveness to some of these individuals that cannot be denied. They're charismatic, they speak well, they speak to relevant contexts, but they are still deceivers, and that's what John is saying. And one of their uh, characteristics is that they do not abide in the teaching of Christ, but they go on ahead. So Jesus said, if you remember this, he, he, he told the Jews, if you abide in my word, then what are you? You are my disciples. That's John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. What John is saying is that these people are not content to stay and abide. Abide means to stay, right? What do they do? They want to run ahead. They're going on ahead. They're innovators. They, they say, we have uncovered new insight. We have a message that is relevant to society today, not something that was passed on from our forefathers. They're shedding new light through their own revelations. They are not content to abide. They want to run ahead. They want to go on ahead. But ultimately, what John says, they have neither the son nor the father. Because Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but it is the teaching of him who sent me. So if you do not have the teaching of Christ, if you do not abide in the teaching of Christ, not only do you not have Christ, but you do not have God. You, do not, you have neither the Son nor the Father. So what are the stakes if you fall for their deception? John says to watch out in verse 8. He says, or we might lose what we have worked so hard for or might not win a full reward. What is at stake is not just you know, a difference of opinion on some doctrine that makes no difference. It's a matter of eternal life and death. See, all false teaching strikes at the core of the character of God and the nature of salvation. To be immersed in false teaching is to take the risk that you're going to lead yourself and lead others astray, taking us away from God and possibly uh, away from salvation. That's what John says. Watch out, because it's not a matter of, of opinion, but there's a matter of life and death. So he says in verse 10 to 11 of 2 John, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So John says, if someone comes to you, one of these teachers comes to you, he says, I'm in town for a few days and would like some room and board. He says, do not give him the guest room. 
You know, in fact, he says, don't even show a hint of hospitality. And you had to ask, why, why was he so harsh? And you had to understand that in the early days of the church, they did not have you know, the recorded scriptures. Right? What they had was, was the testimony of the apostles, the testimony of preachers. But they did not have the oversight that we have today. They did not have the Bible to refer to to, 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 to examine everything against. So, so John takes what we call the nuclear option. He says, like, like, not only do you not invite them into your house, don't even greet them. And so today, you know, we're not saying if you know, someone comes to your door and you find like he's wearing like a white shirt and a black tie, uh, like slam the door, like that's, that's usually what Mormon missionaries wear. Don't slam, it's not, we're not saying slam the door in his face, right? Because today we, we have this deposit of truth contained within the scriptures. But what is the real concern? The real concern is do not give him a platform to spread his views. Do not make it seem like you endorse them. In ancient society, and even today again, uh, in many um, Eastern societies, uh, hospitality is not just a matter of, of, of you know, being nice. It's a matter of promoting a person. Right? By, by inviting someone into your house as a guest, you are you're validating them, you're accepting them, you're promoting them to your friends and your neighbors as saying that this is someone in whom I believe and someone in whom I trust. So John is saying, by having this person stay with you, by having him go around with you, you are taking part in his wicked works, which is the work of spreading falsehood and enticing people away from the truth. Don't let the wolf into the sheep house. Right? You know, that, that concern is not just for church leadership. One of, one of the uh, qualifications of an elder is the ability to discern between uh, rightly between uh, true doctrine and false doctrine. So the church has a responsibility to shepherd its flock from false teachers. But it is also meant for each one of us. Saying, do not let these imposters creep into our communities or into your houses. How so today? And we have to ask, how can we be practical about it? Well, today people are not coming to your house to spread these things. But rather they are coming into your house through television, through radio, through the internet, through books, and, and, and by immersing ourselves in those media, we are doing the same thing that John is warning against. We are endorsing them, we are giving them a platform to spread our views, we are making other people have the opportunity to listen to them. You know, we do not love ourselves if we let that happen. We do not love our brother or sister if we put them in harm's way. And most of all, we do not love that person if we allow him or her to continue in their deceit. So you might ask, well, isn't it nice to have uh, an understanding of all of these different views, just from like an educational point of view? Yes, it is. For some people, right? Discernment is not equally given to everyone. There are some of us who are stronger, some of us who are weaker in that matter. And even if you were to look at it from, let's say, an educational point of view. You know, I know E is equal to MC square, right? That's the general theory of relativity, okay? Sorry, geek dog. I know that, I read that, but I'm not listening to the relativity podcast. I'm not going to the relativity, relativity TV channel. I'm not subscribed to the relativity email newsletter because I have gained the educational understanding that I need to understand what E is equal to MC square and I'm done with it. Do not let that happen. Don't let false teaching into your homes. How do you know how to defend the truth? First of all, we need to know the truth to defend it. So do not you know, trust the advice of a friend or even from a Christian book house. You know, Christian book houses now publish all kinds of things. Just by having the label of Lifeway or Crossway or whatever it is, does not mean that it's biblical. Test all things against scripture. Ask the elders for guidance. You know, do not, do not take comfort in the soft words of, of these false teachers. You, know, you might be hearing the message of hope and comfort that appeals to you in your current situation, but your children and your friends will hear the message that sin is not a big deal, that God welcomes everyone regardless of their walk, and in the end, everyone will be saved regardless of the relationship to the son. You know, when Joel Osteen went on Oprah Winfrey, they had nothing to argue about. Oprah Winfrey believes in Eckhart Tolle, who believes, um, he wrote a, a books about, you know, how we are all part of the spiritual ether of, and all of that. And Joel Osteen went on her talk show and they had nothing to argue about. 
So you might like his message of hope and comfort, but the people who listen to him might not be listening to the same message that you are. They might like the fact that he doesn't condemn anyone, he doesn't call anyone to repentance, he does not call anyone to account for their sins and come to the cross of Christ to gain repentance and to gain salvation. See, one of the, the most clever things that false teachers do is to appeal themselves to everyone, to, to, to clothe their message in contextual need. Where is prosperity gospel the most popular, do you know? In, in South America, in Africa, in, in many countries where society is not as economically advanced and they're coming up. So people want to become rich. That's where prosperity gospel really works. What do rich Americans want to hear? They want to hear hope, the fact that no matter what you do, God loves you. They want to get healing from diseases. They want to be able to live their lives uh, as they wish to, that if you marry a non-believer or an unbeliever, that's okay. So there's a message for that as well. Do not let context determine your fidelity to truth. Do not let your own circumstances determine your fidelity to the truth. You know, how many times have you seen people walk away from God because of a tragedy, because of suffering, because of, 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 of a conflict? You know, a lot of Christians fall prey to false teaching in times of trouble. Because these people have the right answers. They say, oh, God will heal you if you, uh, you just have to pray enough. Right? God will heal you if you send $15 as a seed of faith. Or, or God will make you come through this marriage struggle if you call us uh, you know, and, and talk to us 24-7. As Christians, we do not have the understanding, a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God. We believe God is sovereign in the good times. When it comes to the bad times, we want to be comforted by somebody else. And, and increasingly, we are also being drawn in by this idea that you know, the only truth can come from people who have gone through the same experience. Have you heard this? Right? People say, you have never gone through what I have or what I'm going through, so how dare you come and say that to me? Right? So if you go to someone with, with, uh, with or it could be me, if you come to me and, and I'm going through cancer and you say, this is what the word of God says, say, you, don't, you have never been in my situation. How can you say that to me? Right? We have made truth relative to experience. You know, like I, I've, I've not been driving for a long time, but I know that I should not turn left when the left turn signal is red, right? Okay, so hopefully my son one day will, will drive uh, probably quicker than I did. Uh, and I will tell him, do not turn left when the left turning signal is red. And he might ask me, have you ever done that? No, I haven't. What validity do you have to tell that to me? I don't care, it's the truth. If you want to be T-boned in the middle of the intersection, go ahead. But we have fallen into this mindset that it is only experience that validates truth, whereas it is truth that should validate your experience. But finally, the, the, the most painful reason many people go away is because as a church we have failed. You know how we are supposed to have fellowship in the truth? We are supposed to, to, to lovingly obey the truth, which means love God and love your neighbor. And as a church we fail. We do not have the fellowship. We seek to show that we obey God, but we do not love our fellow brother and sister. So when the time of trouble comes in their life, they do not want to turn to us because we have failed them. So that's why John says, be in fellowship in the truth. Be in love in the truth. Because what might happen otherwise is that when the time of trouble comes, people will turn away from you. But, but, it doesn't matter. Even if this has happened to me or to you, if we have been betrayed by the church, by the community you're in, you know, if you have not, not felt loved, if you have not felt wanted, if you have not felt respected, that still is not an excuse for us to overlook the truth or to, or to give it away. Because the risk is too great. Right? If the church has failed you, seek, you know, seek their forgiveness but do not wander away from the truth because this is a matter of life and death. Do not fall prey to these false teachers. And in 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, you know, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That is the deposit of truth that God has given to each one of us. Guard it. Guard it with your life. That is each and everyone's duty. And John ends by saying, though I have much to write to you, I have rather not use paper and ink Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. 
Seek comfort in the fellowship that is to be found in the truth, in our fellowship with the triune God and his people. Be committed to the loving obedience of his truth. Be on guard to defend it. And then may our joy be complete. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word that not only gives us the truth a lot, but also is so practical in teaching us how to abide in it, how to love it, and how most of all, Lord, to defend it from all the advances that the devil would seek to make upon it, Lord. Many times, Lord, we do not have the conviction, oh Lord, that this is, this is a matter of life and death, but rather we would just seek to reduce it as advice or, or as comfort or as hope, not, not as something that can be the difference between eternal life and eternal life that is separated from you in hell, Lord. We pray that, that we, have, we regain the conviction of the truth that led so many of our forefathers to their deaths, oh Lord, fighting for truth in a world that advocates falsehood. Um, Pray, O Lord, that uh, we, we encourage each other in the fellowship that we have because we share in this truth. That we love each other, O Lord. That we love you by seeking to know more about the truth, but also that we love each other by not doing any wrong to them, by uplifting them, by enriching them, O Lord. And most of all, O Lord, that in the situations that arise, O Lord, that we will be equipped and that we will be uh, op- um, motivated, O Lord, to, to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. And so, O Lord, as we disperse on this Thanksgiving week and as we spend our time with our family and friends, we pray a lot that the fellowship of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be with us forevermore. In Jesus' name we ask.